Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Let me uh, officially welcome you to Restoration Church while I get set up in our removing stage here. Um, I'm going to welcome you first of all if you're in person with us here today. Very glad that you're here. If you are uh, watching us online, which is now a part of the new norm of the modern American church, we are equally glad to uh, have you with us here today. And as is my custom, I want to mention just a couple of important things before we jump into or resume the teaching on a community that we began a couple of weeks ago. So uh, first of all, you'll find, generally speaking, next to your music sheets, a connection card. And that's an important card because it allows us to minister to you if throughout the course of this time in our worship or throughout the week or whenever, if you have a need or would like to pray for or something is going on, if you need support in your faith, that is one of the many ways you can communicate with us. If you're online watching, obviously you do not have a card in front of you, but you can absolutely text or email a holy office or you know, do whatever you want to do to get in touch with us. But there's a myriad of ways of doing that. And I mention this each week just so that we don't forget that our faith, um, our faith is not limited to this time that we spend together for about an hour and 15 minutes each week on Sundays. It's actually, at least my heart's desire is that this is the catalyst that begins to drive the way we think about, pray for, and process, and, and share the joy of the kingdom of Jesus in our in our world. And so, with that in mind, um, we have slowly but surely uh, begun resuming certain ministries. If you have a student, uh, many of you do, we have an official calendar for student meetings, uh, which basically means the time that they're gathering on Sundays. So if you have any questions about that, let us know. We can get you that calendar and get you in the loop on what's going on. We're, we're taking gentle and careful steps here and there just to make sure that we're still functioning um, in wise ways. But nonetheless, we're, we're doing our best to try to uh, uh, resume such, particularly some of these critical ministries that we've had in the life of our uh, church. And so with that said, um, today we're going to continue on uh, discussing this concept of, of community, this biblical truth. This is going to be the third week that we have actually uh, discussed this, where we're sort of looking at a couple of key themes, especially in, in regard to our church, uh, what I would call part of our discipleship pathway. And perhaps, you know, we spent some time talking about the significance of the gospel, what it is, uh, the truth of Jesus, which we'll come back to today. Truth is sort of the central theme of what we're going to be discussing. But community, perhaps more than ever, as I've said each week, is the most disrupted thing on earth right now. The, the normal patterns and the way that people uh, get together, it's, it's changed dramatically. And so more than ever, I think it's important for, for those of us who profess the followership of Jesus to understand what it means to be the church and what our role is in, in times like this. And so we're, we're going to continue to discuss the theology of community. And we've used this text in Acts. As I've said each week, this is not the only text that addresses community, but it is certainly the beginnings of the formation of the church, the beginning of the era that we all live in right now, the era of the church, where we are uh, redeemed in Jesus and given this wonderful opportunity to proclaim uh, his goodness and grace to the world uh, through what he's done for us on the cross. And it's pretty fascinating if you think about this. This passage we're reading is about 2,000 years old, give or take a little bit, and uh, the people writing this, Luke writing this, is actually recording um, people that are doing the same exact thing. They're, they're, they're carrying the same message that we have today, a message of hope, of goodness, of truth, and of grace. And so I'll reread Acts 2, verses 42 through 46. I give you my caveat each week that this is a text often used to make 
Christians feel incredibly bad about what they're not doing. This is not meant to uh, give us some idealistic, here's what life should look like and uh, make us feel bad when we do not meet what's going on here. It's sort of designed to let us understand a little bit about what it means to, to press into these rhythms. So I want you to hear this from the angle of uh, these are rhythms that we see in the early church and the rhythms that should be present in our lives. So with that said, let me, let me read the text. They, speaking of the gathered believers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all of the people. And what we see from this is this, this, uh, this committedness to some of these key principles, these truths. The Lord begins to add to their number daily those who are being saved. And so you have here a really good, a really good text that shows us a bit of a, uh, you might even say it's a summary text. That gives us some very important truths that we can think about when it comes to how we understand the significance of the church family, the church body. Both capital C, meaning like all of the men and women who are in Christ around the world, and, and our church here in particular, lowercase c, restoration. And so a super brief summary uh, about community. We talked about the, the importance of recognizing that community does not begin with us. We actually see that in the economy of God, God has always been in community with the Son and His Holy Spirit. And so community is at, is at the epicenter of, of a God who, who never has not been. And what I mean by that is God has always been in existence, in community with, with what we today know as the Trinity. And so community is derived by understanding the significance that the three place on each other and the one place on, on the three. It's a beautiful truth, and many of the themes of healthy community are derived from understanding um, how God interacts with His Son and the Spirit, the Spirit with the Son and the Son with the Father. There's an incredible amount of, of relational uh, truth that we can garner just from looking at the interactions of the three in the Bible. And so we, all, we also describe that there's a, a significant difference between community and, and meaningful community. Simply meaning you can live in a neighborhood which is a community. That's certainly, I guess, a form of community, but maybe perhaps a very shallow one. Uh, it's different when you live in a community and know your neighbors, signifying that there can be uh, community sort of in name, but not necessarily in relational depth. And that is an important aspect, especially when we talk about the church. And then last week we talked about um, what makes the church unique. What are some of the aspects that, that make our time together here on a Sunday and our, our being bound? Think about this. Even when we leave this place, we are still united by the power of the Holy Spirit. What is it that makes what we do so important, so significant, and so essential um, to the Christian faith? And this is really where we begin to pick up in Acts 2, 42 through 46. We're going to start seeing some of the, the key elements that really set apart the family of God. The, the values and the priorities that we have are shaped in large part by this text. And then, you know, the rest of the New Testament is sort of how these ideas flesh themselves out in the world as it was known in uh, in the first century. And so, one last thing I'll say before I ask my first question, and if this is your first time with us, just so you know, over these past weeks we've changed the format up a little bit on Sundays, and we'll do so for a little longer where we've created a space for me to 
sort of teach in blocks and then have some dialogue about what we're uh, discussing. And so today, I, I want to not introduce, but maybe reintroduce, if you've never heard this, the concept of kitchen table, which is something I have uh, spoken about quite a bit from the front of this room in Theater 9 in the Hollywood Pavilion back in the days when we used to be there. And so the, the kitchen table, for me, is one of the greatest analogies that, uh, that I like to use to describe and gauge the health of our church. And so I want to ask you a, a, a question here. When I, when I say kitchen table, or depending on what part of the country you were raised in, maybe this is the dining room table, um, maybe you have no experiences of sitting at a kitchen table with a, uh, with a loving family. All of this is a reality in a, in a sort of, uh, in a world where people have very different narratives in their lives uh, as far as their backstories. I'm, I'm curious, before we even jump into the teachings of the apostles, I'm curious when I say kitchen table or dining room table or whatever you call it, we call it a kitchen table here, what, um, what, what comes to your mind? Family. Family, okay. So people whom we know and care about uh, spending time over a meal with each other on a, on a pretty consistent basis. Family. Conversation. Conversation, okay, right? Uh, without doubt, I mean, it would be really weird if we just ate and didn't speak, right? But, I mean, I guess that's cool, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's certainly, I'm sure there are some kitchen tables around America like that. So there's interaction or dialogue, okay, what else? Food, okay? So obviously the, the kitchen table, while you can sit in it and have meaningful discussion, we, we often think of meals around uh, the kitchen table, which is, uh, interestingly enough, a, uh, it's, a, it's a neutralizer when it comes to people. It's a common ground. We all get hungry and we all need to eat, and that's why I like the idea of the kitchen table, because it, it tends to spark the discussion. What else? Comfort. Okay, so a place where there's maybe safety and security around people whom you trust and love, and, and that is because you know that they love you and, and trust you, absolutely. There should be, at a healthy kitchen table anyways, a sense of um, security and uh, love and care, absolutely. What else? Happiness. Happiness, okay. So there's a certain joy that is brought about being around people whom you care about. Uh, just look at thank, you know, like Thanksgiving, for example, oftentimes, Family that doesn't normally see each other on a regular basis all gets together. They'll get together, and that creates a really unique dynamic. It's a beautiful sort of happiness uh, that that is uh, a joy, if you will, in being in the presence of those other family members. So I think that you are asking it in the positive sense, but and in my life it was very positive. And I was going to say the word consistent. My mom, that was what we did. That was the expectation. Um, that we would all be there and that she cooked a meal for us. So for us, my sister and I, it was a very positive experience, but for my mother growing up, she did not have that. She had very little mother taking care of her. So for me, it was a positive and I would say it's, it's consistent. You have to have that consistency or you're not gonna get that comfort, that happiness, those conversations, but being aware that Family for us is a positive thing, but for a lot of people, it comes with this like fear, trepidation. Yeah, so this is an important point that some of us might have memories or know people that have memories that are not quite as positive 
as the ones we uh, speak of right now. Maybe uh, the concept of table eating with a family that loved you and cared for you was, was not present in your life or rarely present. This is one of the great uh, evangelistic realities of the Christian church, is that in a healthy church, um, much like much of the terms in the Bible, especially when we talk about truth, you know, there's what the Bible says, and then there's often how people want to sort of interpret things. And when it comes to kitchen table or community, as we're talking about here, what we want to do is exemplify healthy rhythms of biblical community. And so you are right that we, we absolutely need to be mindful you know, I've even said this like on Father's Day when we talk about the goodness of our father. Not everybody has a good story with their father. Lots of people do, but some people don't. And so these are opportunities for us to, to bring a purity to fatherhood in places where somebody has been robbed of an essential need that God has said we, we should have. You know, the beauty of having a mom or a dad. And certainly that analogy can apply to this familial rhythm. Consistency is important. There's no question about that. In any relationship we have, it is imperative that we, we invest in it and are invested, you know, our lives are invested in by, by the community. So very well worth noting. Um, and, and the reason why I always open by saying this text shouldn't be read, uh, read as some idealistic form of perfection is because as you look at the progress of the church in the New Testament, there were issues. There were tiffs and problems and theological disputes, but nonetheless, the, the church continues to move forward and the gospel continues to go to the nation. So don't hear me saying uh, some naive idealism about the kitchen table. Um, I, I remember two things about the kitchen table. Um, so we literally had a kitchen table when, when I was younger anyways. In, in our little apartment in New York, we had a little round table and this little shotgun kitchen. And I can remember during the winter, um, sitting next to the radio when it was snowing, eating pastinis, as my mom would make it, sort of like, a, it's like Italian farina. Maybe that's the best way to say it. It's like sugar noodles. And we were eating these things, hoping like, when are they, they going to say school's canceled, right? Because uh, so, so, so my brother and I would sit there, and there were two blizzards where they canceled school. And then I remember growing up, and then when we came to Florida, um, it was ironic. I, I wound up hooking up with a bunch of friends that were all like, you know, late teen, early 20, disgruntled, relocated New York kids. Like, that's sort of like what my crew became. And it was sort of like a, a flashback of home where... Um, there was my immediate family at the supper table, but there were always other people, uh, not always, but very often, let me put it this way, other people that would just show up and eat at the, at the table. And so there was this interesting, um, you know, di dynamic about, uh, about how gathering took place. Uh, it was commonplace, at least at our table, to have other people that were not necessarily biologically bound to us come there. In fact, this is a true story. Um, I told this story to my wife, but... Many, many, many years ago, before I was married, uh, I was dating a girl, and I remember I, I, I got invited over to our house for supper, and there were four of us at the table, mom, dad, her, and me, and there were four hamburgers, and I thought, this relationship cannot go on, because in my, in my house, like, when there were four people, there were 14 hamburgers, so I knew right then something was off and, and wrong. I, I had all these sort of expectations about what, like, this, who else is going to show up? Are you going to get one hamburger? It's just not right. So, anyways, you know, I have, generally speaking, positive memories from kitchen table, but I also have hard memories of it. So, like, uh, most of you know I am, like, completely OCD about punctuality, and um, uh, that's because my dad had a rule, like, we were in at 5.30 for supper, and uh, if we were not in at 5.30, then we didn't eat. And so uh, I can remember, like, we were always in at 5.30, and I, I never understood why my dad did that when we were younger boys, but I do realize 
realized there was something important about that, that it, it began to show us the, the importance of valuing somebody else's uh, time. And so the kitchen table, right, it can make us laugh, it can make us cry, we can have some of the most meaningful and significant conversations at it, we can have very hard and difficult conversations, we can learn from each other, and, and all of this is the context that I sort of like to think about our church family, especially as we shift into this ever so odd 10th year of ministry. And so today what I want to talk about is we, we talk to kitchen table and, and our own sort of stories, how they inform how we understand the kitchen table. But uh, I want to talk about today, we're certainly not going to get through all of them, but I want to talk a little bit today about what the Bible says the elements of the table should be. Uh, meaning, what are the things at the Christian table? And I like to use the word table because the, the literal expression of the kingdom of God, Jesus gives us, right, before he goes to the cross, is the, it's communion, the last supper, right? So you can even see that the table is significant in the life of the disciples. They are, they are literally with their Lord um, in his presence, not even fully understanding what is about to happen, right? But what is happening there is the foundation of what we're reading about today. And so we're, we're going to look at Acts chapter 2, just verse 42, and I'd be surprised if we got through the three elements in here today. We'll get through as much as we can and pick up next week, but I want to start with this statement. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That's just some of what was mentioned last week by you all. And the things that I want to talk about today, beginning, is the apostles' teaching. So we see that there is a devotedness, and remember, people that are not uh, following Jesus yet are observing this day, this group of people, and their actions. And the first thing we read, at least here, is that they are devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. And so the teaching of the apostles is what I want to talk about right now. Is there a uh, is there an importance in the modern church? And really in any, any discipline that matters, okay, is there an importance in, in having certain truths that we adhere to, certain truths that we believe are, uh, are, are important? I guess my first question would be is, do you think, this, this, is, this is a statement about teaching, and the apostles, uh, the teaching of the apostles is the narrative of Jesus. In other words, this is the beginning of the spread of the gospel. Uh, the apostles are the messengers that begin to take what Jesus has done, and they start sharing this with the world. Uh, so I'm curious, uh, what, is the, what is the importance of truth? What do you think is important? <laughs> I hope at least two of you do. <laughs> yeah. I was reading something this morning, and it was, you know, to the time we're in, this whole the constitutional debate element on beginning to end. And, and I really had the thought that when it comes to the Bible, the fact of the matter is, is there are, there are undebatable truths within it. There are th it, it. It is what it is. And we don't have the right to say, oh, wait a minute, it's 2020, therefore the truth has changed. We do have to stand on the fact that that is the one and only truth that we are given. We must establish what it is from it that are the truths that, that are undebatable and, and they, they cannot change. They, they, they're not our truths. They're not something that we define. They're not something the majority of the free decide. They're something that a sovereign God has established our truths, has told that, given it to us as truths. And if we don't look at it and study it to say these things don't change, 
then we're in trouble. Because we're definitely in a culture in the world that says, oh no, everything can change based on, and that's not a new thing. We look at, at the, the writing of the Bible to show where it was, but everybody knew whatever was right in their own eyes. So we have to stand on knowing there's a truth that it does not change. It does, it's not based on where I live, who I am, culture, or anything. It is a truth that if we don't, as a church, establish and know what we stand on, we're in trouble. Okay. And so, in case you didn't hear this over here or online, what you're talking about, and this is actually the direction we're heading in, is uh, when we speak about Scripture, we're, we're talking about, in this case, the teachings of the apostles, which is, this is the formation of the, the New Testament as we know it. Um, and clearly, the Old Testament is included in this. You're talking about objective truth, meaning um, when we talk about God's truth, it is his truth whether we affirm it or not. It, uh, uh, for example, uh, obviously I do believe deeply that Jesus is the Son of God and he's died for my sins and he you know, dwells in me with the power of the Holy Spirit. These things I deeply believe. But if I were to say to people, I don't believe these things, what Daryl is saying is that that doesn't affect the reality of what God has said or done. This is what we mean by objective. It's a truth that you may have your opinions on it, but the reality is in the Christian faith, this is something we believe is, is indisputable. Unlike the, the other side of the fence you're talking about is subjectivity, and that is um, where there's just sort of like we make up truth as we go. And there's no, no debating this. I mean, you can look at um, even some of the more recent movements of Christianity, some of the stuff that has drifted into cult-like behavior, there are definitely places where people have, in the name of reading the scripture, elevated truths that were their own and not, not the Bible's. And so this is a foundational aspect of what we see happening here in the book of Acts, is that there's, an, a, there's a devotion to truth, and all these other things follow it. And what I mean by this is, like, the, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. So here's an interesting question. We're going to get back to truth in a second. But, but how do we know what biblical fellowship is? Commitment 
is truth, to God's truth. And so we can all agree truth is important. I, I kind of want to ask you another question, and that is this. What are your thoughts on, on what truth is and how it is used in our culture today, how that word is used in our culture today? Because what we're arguing for here is that the Bible is, is the scripture, and this is God's revelation of himself to the world, and we believe this is true. But there's certainly, even in this room, dis, or different opinions, and certainly in our world, about what, what truth is. So what are some of the experiences you have had, or maybe interactions you've had, or maybe even personal wrestlings you've had with this idea of truth, when it, when it leaves the boundaries of the Bible and goes out into the creative world? Because remember, we speak this truth in a world that has a multitude of truths, some which are true and many which are not. So let's talk about experiences with how culture sees truth right now. Or the way you see it, certainly. It's open mic, whatever you want to discuss is fine with me. Yes? I struggled with this right out of college with one of my very closest friends who was struggling with something that the Bible said was a sin. And I remember kind of walking through this situation with him of deciding how he would determine what truth was. And if I was honest, it was something that as a human being I thought if I was God, I wouldn't have made that a rule. Like it didn't bother me. I didn't understand God's, does that make sense? I didn't understand God's truth in that. However, as I watched what happened to my friend's Christianity, he began to slowly change it and to make justifications. And he started to going to a, a different church. And then eventually he was at a Unitarian church. And he was looking for places where his truth could, he could be comfortable with his truth. And what I realized is there's a point at which when we compromise God's truth for our truth, we stop worshiping the God who reveals himself in the Bible, you know, Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And we really start worshiping a God of our own making. Yes. And eventually we're just worshiping ourselves. And while it was very difficult for me because I loved this person, and quite frankly, I didn't have a problem with what he was doing, it came down to the fact of, am I going to allow God to be God and to determine the truth that he says is truth? Or am I going to manipulate it in such a way that I'm comfortable with and it looks like I want it to look? Sure. And so in case you didn't hear this, this is a, this is a key truth right here. And that is, um, the, the language we use here at Restoration is that it's very easy to, to make a God in our own image and worship that God. Meaning... Uh, we can read things in the Bible that we have challenges with or disagreements with. And obviously, uh, the process of sanctification means we should be in communities of faith where we can ask questions and grow in our grace. And Jesus, grow in our understanding of him. But there's sort of two trajectories that people find themselves on when it comes to truth. The first is they read something and God reveals something new to you, whether it's spirituality or morality or, or, or any kind of a way that we think about the, the followership of Jesus in our life on earth. And we wrestle with these things, and we learn to become more like Christ in our daily living. And that is a process. That's one, one trajectory. The other trajectory, which is what you're bringing up, is that some people will come across those same truths, and they will essentially just say they don't really care what they say. And eventually what they try to do is subordinate that truth to their own truth. And what happens then is one person winds up following or attempting to the best of their ability following Jesus and his truth, the other person oftentimes creates a whole other narrative and calls it faith. And I think it is very common, particularly in a world where we see uh, everybody 
is lobbying to push a narrative on somebody right now, okay? So what tends to happen with a person who is okay with truth being very fluid, especially biblical truth, is they seek another group of people that are just going to affirm what they, what they have to be true. And it's great if you're seeking a body because you, you feel like there are things that are happening that are not spiritual. But it's actually not great if you're you know, church hopping or community hopping because you're trying to find justification structures to follow Jesus but really follow yourself. And this is another great example of why we have um, objectivity and truth, simply meaning there, there has to be a, a clear standard. Uh, there has to be an expectation. And part of what scripture does for us is it, it reveals God's expectations for uh, how we know and grow in his grace, and, and certainly, if you read the Genesis account, how we flourish as a, as a civilization. So let's, let's kick this ball around a little bit. Um, what are some other experiences you've had uh, with truth? In this case, we've got an example of somebody who read something in scripture and then decided that they just were, you know, it just wasn't, what, wasn't for them. Any, any other experiences personal, relational, you've had with, um, with truth? I have one thing that goes in line with this same thing, and it's just a, the uh, term. What is your truth? My truth is such that never used to even be a phrase. And it's a, a, a recent phrase where truth has not become a standard, but rather a, like you said, very fluid and uh, there's no objectivity. It's just yours or mine or whatever. Okay. So if you didn't hear this, um, this is a very important point. And that is that, uh, certainly when I say as of late, I don't mean over the past couple of years. I think over the past couple of decades, what's happening is, is we, we have seen a greater inclination to moving truths as opposed to truth. And this is explicitly linked, this is actually in my notes here, um, to the way that we as Westerners Think about things. So this is a great example where uh, culture is attempting to redefine not all of culture or all of the church, but there are certain aspects of culture that are seeking to redefine what we believe truth is. If you were to go back, I'm just going to say 70, 80 years ago, okay? This does not mean that there were not people that had some fluidity scheme in their truth, but if you were to go back into the era of what is known as the, the modern era, Generally, there are some tendencies that you find in this era, and that is that there is a um, there is much more of a recognition of there being a truth. There is a right or a wrong. Just just look at warfare over the past 100 years. It used to be that I wore a uniform and you wore a uniform, and then we knew who each other were in the battlefield. And because of the Geneva Convention, we didn't um, you know we didn't mess with civilians. But now what happens is people. All those boundaries have broken down. Uh, people wear civilian clothes and strap babies to their chest. And oftentimes we'll use civilians as shields to be able to do horrific things, right? There's, it's sort of like we went from a, a, a bit of a clean-cut understanding of right and wrong to now like the, the uniform represents a change in the way people see things. You can also see this um, in the era of modernity was, was much more committed to the idea of singular truths, all right? However, as we move from a nation and really a hemisphere that's, that's very industrialized in its origin, like in the early part of the last century, to more technological and informational, what happens is, is we have this abundance of knowledge that is thrown at us. And it begins to 
suddenly shift the way humans think. And I'll, I'll give you a, the greatest example of this. The, the era we live in now, um, we, we rightly identify as the postmodern era, simply meaning that people do not, most people do not see truth the way we're talking about it right now. They see truths as fluid and, and, and able to move, and, and they're also able to be adjusted or, or changed in the sense of what we were talking about earlier in the Bible. We're able to now cast truth in our own image and put, label it Christianity. And so here's where, that, that's obviously wrong, but here's where, there's a single person in this room that has not, to some degree, bought into this. And let me explain. So uh, I have never known how to fix a washing machine, but because of YouTube, in the era of the expert and the professional, <laughs> right, what I would do is I would call somebody who went to school to fix appliances, and I would rest, my, my hope was in that person to repair that appliance. That's, that's how it generally worked. Um, any of you ever look at Zillow? Yeah, Zillow's a real estate site. And I've met a lot of people who look at the value of their house and think they have a real estate license, okay? Uh, my favorite example is uh, WebMD. These are all good tools now, right? Any of you ever look at WebMD? Oh, yeah, and you're all dying. <laughs> WebMD, it's, a, it's a, a really great medicine site with reputable sources. But what tends to happen is, is your elbow hurts, and any, any time you start with WebMD, it's like a rabbit hole. You're like, I'm going to die. That's where it ends, like every, every single time, right? So we have all of this information at our fingertips now. And what starts to subtly happen, sociologists are writing books called things like The Death of Expertise, is that everybody begins to believe that they are an expert in everything because they watch the YouTube video. Now, um, I'm not saying we can't learn or that we shouldn't grow, but can we see how there could be a potential problem with certain forms of truth? For example, if you came to me and said, uh, Pastor Anthony, I'm having heart surgery on Thursday, um, pray for me. And I said, hey, I watched the video on this. <laughs> and I can do it at half price. <laughs> right? You would say, no, please just pray for me. <laughs> or to find a new job, right? So there are absolutely places where the stakes are so critical with this. Um, you know, I, use a, I often use the physical body because if we think about the essential nature of our skin and bone, the same is true when it comes to our soul. And so when we think about post-modernity, what's happened is people really don't have a gauge on truth anymore. And you have, it was, you sort of loosely mentioned it, I don't remember the exact reference in the book of Judges, but what we're moving towards is the era where everybody seems to do what they think is right in their own eyes. Uh, in other words, they make their own opinions. And sometimes those opinions can be right. But oftentimes, um, what it does is it, it creates a, a piecemeal, I'm speaking specifically now about Christianity, um, we are living in a time, and you've heard me say this before, where we have more access to the Bible than the, in the history of the world. You can, you can pick it up in multiple translations. You can read it in, uh, in original languages. We, you know, we really support the Bible uh, app here where literally you can sit in your car and just, like, the Bible app will read the Bible to you. Like, it's like having a digital Bible reader to you. It's gotten to the point where all you have to do is, is have access to the Internet and you can have the Bible spoken to you. Yet we are living in a, at a time where biblical illiteracy is off the charts. Meaning we've never had more clear access to the truth of God. And the result of this is an ever-increasing fluidity and for some folks just no desire at all um, 
engage that truth, yet have some brand or form of Christianity. And I'm curious what you think the effect of this, um, I'm not saying this from our church, obviously we believe in the, the truth, that Jesus is the way, and we want to be sort of gracious in the way we communicate this to people, but nonetheless it's what we believe. And we can say that confidently, but also, also gently. I'm, I'm curious, there are just two last questions I want to throw out here. The first is, what happens to, to us as Christians if we start to treat um, Scripture like WebMD or, or Zillow? Yes? So, like my thoughts on this, it's becoming a lot easier for people to take the Bible out of context with the high rate of being able to find the verse that you're looking for. You type in three words and you can find the one verse that you want to take completely out of context. And as Christians, we have to be very careful as to what we say is the truth as long as we are know our Bible and know the Holy Spirit is behind us and not ourselves accidentally taking something out of context and twisting it to fit our narrative. Amen. Um, and I think it's very important that, like, just in general, a lot of times I see in the Christian community they're so big on saying the truth and holding those people accountable and they'll hold this person accountable while putting another person on the pedestal for doing the exact same thing by twisting the truth of the Bible. So it's it's important that even though it's so much easier to find the Bible and find these verses, that we're reading the whole context of that verse and of that phrase or anything. Okay, so this is very important and for our online viewers if you haven't heard this. Um, what you're talking about is there's an appropriate way to, to read the Bible. And the, the truth is, by taking verses out of context, which is what you're saying, I mean, literally, you, you don't have to, uh, you don't have to be a philosopher to, to take a single verse and make it say whatever you want. And this is why we think it's very important that we understand truth. So here you have the, the teaching of the apostles. In other words, this is talking about a plurality of truth, meaning like it's not just a singular truth. They're, they're proclaiming the message of Jesus, and this message begins to inform other areas of life. And what I would say here is that the more we, the more we know the truth of God, the more we are in Scripture, and it's very important, too, as we speak about community, this is one of the reasons we need each other, because we do have questions at times, and maybe even objections, and we need to be able to go to people who can help us wrestle with these things. What we're talking about here is the significance of discernment, so that we can sit and hear somebody say something that we... We might not fully get it first and need clarification, or maybe it truly is something that that is not the truth of God. This is also in the Bible. I mean, there's slews of verses. Probably the most famous one would be Paul when he talks about the Nero or where people want their sort of ears tickled. In other words, the idea is that they, they want God, but they don't actually want God. They want a God in their own in their own image. And so you're spot on that the, the era of of Zillow and WebMD is valuable as they are. The instantaneous access we have to the scripture, it can create an unhealthy level of autonomy. Um, and at its worst abuses, you, you really get to a place where there is no there is no desire for God's truth or to flesh it out in the body. There's just a desire to create. We I didn't term this coin, but they're what we call justification structures. Basically, it's just we're going to read stuff and. Uh, you know, uh, it, it, it says, uh, vengeance, uh, vengeance is the Lord's. But he had to return yet, so everyone would punch you in the mouth, right? We get, we get to these places where we just start justifying in our minds ways that we can make a verse support um, perhaps what is a significant place that Jesus wants to work in our lives. 
in our hearts. So, where, where for, for the Christian, where would we say um, our ultimate truth comes from? This is sort of a softball question, but it's an important one to, to affirm. Where do we derive the ultimate truth? And then I have one other question. God. God. Yeah, so in, 
I mean, in Christ, you definitely see he is fearless in addressing places where truth does not exist, right? And then, but ultimately, the, the ultimate culmination of of God's kingdom truth is his sacrifice for us on the cross. What else? Word and deed. Yes. So, so the, there's a, a way we carry ourselves when we have the the truth. Okay, and and that's important. It's important that we actually are people that are sort of, for example, um, if we read even in this passage, like here's, here's a great example. Uh, this passage really emphasizes the point of prayer, which we obviously are not going to have to get to. But this is a place where there should be consistency. If we believe prayer is critical to the Christian life. Then we should we should to some degree attempt to be growing in our in, in our prayer life. And whatever it is we're saying or doing, there needs to be a bit of an alignment here in, in holding the truth uh, and and being sort of humble in the way that we present it to people. Paul in Colossians reminds us to be mindful of the way we treat outsiders. In other words, he literally says um, the people out, outsiders is a reference to people that are not in the family of faith. They're not Christians, and he gives us an exhortation to really think about the way we treat them. He gives us an exhortation to be able to give an account for our faith. In other words, to be able to answer questions that our culture might have. And I thought it, I, I say it's an irony, but it's really not. I find God does this a lot. The verse of the day yesterday, which I always encourage you all to read in, in, the, um, in the Bible app, which I just produced for you, it was from the Proverbs. And it talked about the, the six things God disdains and the one thing he hates. And the first thing in that list was, Haughty eyes, H-A-U-G-H-T, haughty. Anybody know what haughty means? Arrogant, right? Disdain. You don't hear a lot in the scriptures of things God hates. But one of the things God hates is um, arrogant eyes. In other words, think of the Pharisee who has truth, at least they thought they did, and then they begin to look down on others. They, they don't have an empathy to share this truth. They actually just... They go the other way, John. They feel like, well, I've got something you don't have, therefore I'm better than you. Yeah. And uh, and that is something that God really um, doesn't care for. Because what it ultimately does is it keeps people from actually knowing the truth. It creates an inconsistency, as you were saying a moment ago. Um, if I say that God, uh, you know, if we read, like, for example, Abe was talking about the fruit of the Spirit earlier. He mentioned several, several of them in our pre-worship prayer. And it's really important that uh, those, those, that, that fruit is a singular fruit that creates these expressions of, of sort of deep-seated spiritual and emotional behavior. They're out of kindness and gentleness. These are important things. So if I was the meanest human on earth, um, but I came here and we can talk to you about Jesus' love, you, 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 might, you might find a disconnect there. And I would say if you have a discerning spirit, actually, actually would. And so since we literally, it's, it's time for us to wrap up here, but and I love the fact that we spent the whole time talking about three words. Um, it's important, though, okay? Because I'm telling you, everything we're going to discuss out of this, this, this text here clearly identifies that the, 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 these people, this, this early development of the church, was already committed to an existing body of, of objective truth. They have in their entirety the Old Testament scriptures. And, they, and as Luke is writing this stuff, that the New Testament, at least in its origins, has been written already, okay? So we have these two amazing bodies of truth, for us especially. We look back at these things like, we can flip the page in Acts and figure out what happened like in Galatia. But for the Galatians, this was like a, you know, 
what they were dealing with. It's amazing when you think about how much access we have to, to, to God's truth. We don't, we don't have to Google much. We actually can go right to the Word and see the story from Genesis to Revelation in the way that God worked. And so I want to encourage you, Abe's going to make his way up here and give you a chance to just think about this a little bit this morning. To just, as, as we move into this sort of our, our little response time where you can pray and process and meditate on what we discussed, to just really ask yourself, do you, um, do you value God's truth? And I want you to know that no matter how you answer that question, this is a place where we want to get you to the place, we want to lead you to the place where the answer is yes. So don't feel like if you have questions or concerns uh, or objections that, that you'll meet the hard hand here. What we want to do is help you understand why it's important for those who follow Jesus to know and grow and, and value the truth. So think about how you understand God's truth, and then certainly think about how, how it shapes your life. Are you in the Word? Um, are, are you devoted to things that are not the truth, in this case the teaching of the apostles or the truth of God? Are there other things that take precedent in your life over um, this truth? Because if that is the case, then that means there, there's a need for a sanctification uh, pivot. There's a place to make sure that, that Jesus is our King in every area of our lives. So let me pray, and then uh, if you have questions, you can certainly notate the stuff on these connection cards. If you're online and you need some, uh, if you need anything, contact the office. Use this time to, um, to just think about what we've discussed. If you're a part or a member, Restoration in a, almost they look like pews are online. This is also the time where we receive our, uh, our gifts and our offerings and tithes. Thank you for your faithfulness there. So you can uh, place those uh, gifts and those cards in these gift towers or submit them to us um, digitally online. But let's pray in the name of David. Sorry about the awkward nature of kicking the bottle over. <laughs> uh, Father in heaven, thank you for this day and this opportunity we have to worship you and your truth. And I do pray, Lord, that no matter where our hearts are, we would learn to love you and your truth in ever-increasing ways. So that our life a year from today is more in alignment with the goodness and grace of your son. Nothing else in this world but you. That we are constantly migrating towards um, the perfect image of humanity in Jesus Christ, in our thoughts, in our hearts, and in the way that we carry and conduct ourselves with people. May your truth not only humble us, God, but may it, may it also create an empathy in us, Father, to, to love and serve others, to bring that truth where it is needed, and to meet needs through word and deed, wherever you provide opportunity for your truth to do so. We ask now that you take these remaining moments and help us to solidify in our hearts a plan of action, if you will, as we leave this place and get on with our lives.